is an Odyssey original. This is a special edition of KNX In-Depth, COVID-19, three years later. I'm Rob Archer. And I'm Charles Feldman. It was three years ago this Saturday that really the world changed. The World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a pandemic. Nearly 7 million people all across the world have died and millions more have been infected, many suffering life-altering effects. And we're going to take a look at the mental health impacts, the mysteries of long COVID, and if Congress can help us figure out the origins of the virus. Has Congress ever figured out anything? That is a very good question. We should get Congress on that. Okay. We start, though, with our guests who will be with us for the whole show. Joining us here in studio is Dr. Angelique Campen, who's an ER doctor at Providence St. Joseph Medical Center in Burbank. We also have COVID survivor Greg Garfield. Now, he was L.A. County's patient zero, the first confirmed COVID patient to be admitted to the hospital. Uh, Dr. Greg, both of you, thank you for being with us for the entire program. Appreciate it. Absolute pleasure. Doctor, let me start with with you. Uh, Go back in your own life as a physician to four years ago, three and a half years ago. How has your life as a doctor changed from three and a half years ago, say, to when COVID became a pandemic and then, of course, the three years that have gone by now? You know, if someone had told me I would be practicing the way I was practicing three years ago, I would have been shocked. I may have been swayed not to go into emergency medicine. It was it was really difficult in those times, having patient after patient come in, dying, having very little information in the beginning of how to help my patients, and frankly, being afraid for my own life that I also would succumb to the disease. And, uh, Doctor, I do want to talk with you more about when you began to realize that something major was happening, but I want to get a question in for uh, Greg Garfield. Uh, L.A. County's patient zero, I think the first the first person in L.A. County who had to be hospitalized with COVID. And this is, if we can remember back, think back to before there was Paxlovid, before there were vaccines, and before there were booster shots that help us turn COVID into something that just feels like having a flu for a few days. Uh, Greg, when you came came down with COVID, it was something major and serious. Tell us a little bit about your experience. On the beginning, ignorance is bliss. We didn't know anything about COVID. Um, When I was in Italy on a ski trip, I got a a call from my girlfriend that at the time, now my fiance, that uh, COVID was was in the area that we were in and nobody worried anything about it. Uh, We were outdoors skiing we're all healthy guys and we we just didn't know what to think about it and really we weren't too worried at all all right but but i also understand uh, greg that that uh, dr campen was is your doctor i i was one of one of the doctors doctors in the emergency department i remember getting a call right that we had someone in the community with covid we were the closest hospital And if he required help, he would be coming to our hospital. And then a couple days later, getting the call that, yes, he was on his way in. And my partner, Dr. Kishinev, and I got ready, gowned up, 
put all the protective equipment on and took a deep breath. Were, were As a doctor, were you both excited because this was a, a unique illness and you were now getting an opportunity, and I hate to put it that way, but you were. You're getting an opportunity to work on, on a patient who had it. But at the same time, were you frightened? I would say that it was more frightening because mm-hmm. at this point um, we had learned about what was happening in Europe and uh, and on the East Coast. And it, we still didn't know exactly how it spread at that point. So I remember putting on our almost space-like helmets mm-hmm. with with filters in it and gowning up from so that not a bit of skin showed and heading in and and being being a little afraid to to go home after work to my family i i am curious one thing greg did you as a patient were you able to sense the concern uh, or fear that the physicians had because usually Patients are used to physicians being very confident because you go to them, you have a problem. The doctor goes, ah, you've got this. Did you pick up on that? I'm curious. Absolutely. I was put into an inflow room where they, if they were not ready, gowned up to walk in that room, it took them 15 minutes to do so. Uh, There was only a couple people allowed in that room at any one time. Um, It it was, it was... uh, it was very fearful to, uh, when I was sitting there uh, of what was going on, and especially being the fact that I, I went to the hospital because I really couldn't breathe. I remember uh, right before the uh, lockdowns, it was the last time my wife and I went to dinner before everything shut down. Yeah. And uh, we had gone to Red Lobster. And then that night, we stopped by the Apple store. I picked up my new uh, iMac that I had uh, bought. And then it was, I think, just uh, just a couple of days later is when the first lockdowns were announced. So we knew that COVID was coming at the time. That's why we wanted to go out. And I remember the restaurant was empty. So it was like your your last yeah, lobster yeah, for, our, for years. Our last <laughs> lobster party, and then uh, then the lockdowns happened. So it was kind of interesting. Uh, we have in studio for this special edition of In Depth, Doctor Angelique Campen from Providence Saint Joseph Medical Center in Burbank. Also, COVID survivor Greg Garfield, who was among the first people in the Western world to come down with the virus. Right now, though, uh, we've talked a lot the past few years about the pandemic and how it's hit our mental health pretty hard. Kids, adults, just about everyone. Dr. Michael Brodsky is the Medical Director for Behavioral Health and Social Services at L.A. Care Health Plan. Dr. Brodsky, thank you for being with us. Thank you. I'm happy to be here, and thank you for covering this important topic. Talk about the, the you know, it's easy for people to say, well, it's really uh, hit us hard uh, psychologically, and, you know, but has it really? Or are people very resilient and I'm thinking back, well, I don't remember it, of course, but I'm, I'm, the history of the Spanish flu, it came, it went, and people really did kind of forget about it. And they went on to the Roaring Twenties. Uh, there was almost no mention of it in, uh, in novels at the time, in uh, journalism. People just wanted to be over with it, and they went on with their lives. Is it different now? You know... It may be a little bit early to tell whether we'll look back at this time at another set of Roaring Twenties, the 2020s. Uh, Time will tell. But so far, we're seeing a few warning signs that uh, it has been a bit of a rough period these three years. Kids and adults have been suffering. There's been a lot of loss. And 
we don't see a lot of signs that there's a rapid bounce back. You know, that's interesting that you say it that way, because 9-11 was invented, affected everyone who was alive at the time. And we all remember where we were when it happened. Uh, but this pandemic was a worldwide phenomenon. This affected everyone. And in an age of social media and everyone could communicate with everyone else. But at the same time, there was also the rise of this misinformation and conspiracy theories about it. Because anytime there's a major, major event, there are some people who just can't accept that it is what it is and have to create these narratives to make it more interesting to them, I guess. I, I don't know how else to put it. Uh, so when we talk about uh, we're going to tell our kids we lived through the pandemic. This was a thing that shut down the world for uh, quite a while, and it took us a long time to recover. So do you think it's interesting that we might we might have more cultural awareness of this because of the lingering after effects that we're feeling, uh, for example, mental health? I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned the kids, because if there's any single population where we're seeing the lights flashing the most red, it's with our kids. You know, there's data coming out in the state of California, looking at how the last year or so or last year or two has been. And also most recently, just a couple of weeks ago from the National Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta saying Kids are having all-time high levels of distress, especially teenagers and especially teenage girls. This was a phenomenon that people were starting to note even before COVID came around in 2018, 2019. The mental health researchers were starting to note it. And, well, I'm sorry to say that we're seeing that continue. Dr. Campin has a question. So I'm definitely seeing a significant amount of young adults, teenagers, um, in the emergency department needing in mental health crisis significantly more than I've ever seen in my career. Um, and it's true. Kids really bore the brunt of this pandemic with isolation, being out of school and so forth. You're with LA care health plan. What kinds of resources are, are being given to try to, to try to get on top of this? Hey, Dr. Campin, thank you for the question. You know, not just at LA Care, but also at the state level. Uh, Governor Newsom and the administration made available $400 million to intervene for kids' uh, mental health and substance abuse issues uh, in the context of schools. So uh, LA Care has been working for the past 15 months or so, and just earlier last month, we launched a telehealth program to provide counseling in the setting of schools in multiple school districts, starting with Compton Unified School District. We had a press conference and we're very interested to try to get kids help sooner and in the place where they spend most of their waking time in the schools. Greg, uh, I want to go back to you for a second. Uh, you have long COVID, do you? I don't, fortunately enough. Okay, but what about the psychological impact on you? Do you still feel that? Um, I'm happy to say no. Um, I, I look at it every day. Obviously, I, I lost uh, all my fingers on my right hand and half my fingers on my left, so it's a reminder every day of what I went through. Um, I, was, I was probably one of the more severe people ever to have COVID that's still alive today. Um, and fortunately enough, physically, 
outside of my fingers, uh, I recovered 100% after even having complete organ failure. How, yeah, okay, how did you lose your fingers? Uh, what, what was the mechanics of that? So I was uh, put on pressors, which forces the blood to my vital organs for survival, which compromised my extremities. Um, fortunately enough, they were more interested in saving my, my life than fingers, which I think they made a great choice. Um, and I'm, I'm alive to, to tell about it. I do think that there are people who are listening who are going to hear your story, Greg, and think, how could it not have impacted him at a psychological and a deep psychological level, yet you say it hasn't now? It's mindset. Um, you know, it's I've spent a, a large majority of my time um, helping others from uh, you know being the first patient that was admitted, um, educating people on, on understanding what the reality is. Um, and I think a lot of the, my involvement in talking about it actually really calmed my mind uh, in regards to uh, being able to help others. Uh, Dr. Rotsky, uh, when we talk about the mental aspects of this and the uh, long-term psychological effects, especially with the children who uh, live through this, I think part of it might be, and you can tell me if I'm right, uh, that the parents were just as frightened as the children, and children know this. Uh, a lot of times when children have lived through traumatic world events, the parents have maintained, you know, a stoic outlook and tried to, like, make sure that the kids felt like things were okay. But I think in this case, where the pandemic was first starting and we knew so little about it and all we knew was that people were dying left and right, I think the parents were frightened too. And that has to filter down to the children, and that might result in long-term effects, right? I could not agree more. That's absolutely true. I think if you recall back to 2020, the, there was fear in everybody's eyes and so much uncertainty about how things would play out. All right, Dr. Broxie, uh thank you so much for uh, being with us on the show. Still in the studio with us, we are continuing with uh, Dr. Angeline Campen from Providence St. Joseph Medical Center in Burbank and COVID survivor Greg Garfield. You're listening to a special edition of KNX In-Depth, COVID-19, three years later with Charles Feldman. I'm Rob Archer. And we're also joined in studio by Dr. Angelique Campen from Providence St. Joseph in Burbank. Uh, also with us is Greg Garfield, a local COVID survivor who was the first confirmed COVID patient admitted to the hospital in L.A. County. And coming up, we're going to talk to L.A. County Public Health Director Dr. Barbara Ferrer on how we stand now locally in controlling the virus. And right now, though, doctors are learning a lot more about long COVID every day. With us is Dr. Adupa Rao, pulmonologist from Keck Medicine of USC, heavily involved with the Keck Medicine COVID Recovery Clinic. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. So when we talk about long COVID, what kind of uh, effects does that have on people, and how do you help them get over something that just feels like it never goes away? Right. There's a lot of symptoms that seem to persist after a COVID infection. These could be shortness of breath, could be numbness, could be loss of function of an arm or a leg, activity of the muscles, or it could be what we're referring to as COVID fog, just not being able to concentrate and do our usual activities that we were able to do before a COVID infection. Do we know, do you know, whether long COVID is uh, the the direct effect of the virus, in other words, is the virus sort of uh, hiding out somewhere in the body and is wreaking havoc that way? Or are we talking about some sort of long-term impact, inflammation, what have you, that is a residue effect of the virus? That's a great question. 
I, I, I think it's the latter more than the former, um, but we just don't have enough data yet. We think that there's a hyper immune response that's going on and this immune response is persisting after the viral load has gone down or is completely wiped out from our body. And we think that this hyperimmune system is what's triggering some of the changes that we may see in the different organ systems, which include the lungs, the heart, our neurological system, uh, and so forth. Do you see long-term effects more in patients who had uh, compromised health or were healthier? Um, I, I think we're still trying to understand that question uh, at this moment. Uh, we know that a large number of people that got COVID and had the most severe manifestations of acute COVID were those that were immunocompromised, whether they were obese, hypertension, diabetes, had other chronic illnesses. And that, by the sheer volume, those are the same patients that we're seeing that have long COVID. Now, interestingly enough, we are seeing some younger patients uh, with the second and third wave of COVID that's come through that also have manifestations of long COVID. So I think the jury is still out on that, uh, whether there's a predisposing or predisposition to developing long COVID and what that is. Dr. Campen, I'm curious, uh, as an ER physician, when a patient comes into the hospital and they're complaining of, of uh, GI issues or uh, what have shortness of breath, do you now have to think in terms of, ah, this could be long COVID, or is that something that, that's really far down the list in the differential diagnosis? It's definitely become one of the higher etiologies on our differential diagnosis. Unfortunately, it, it seems to be a diagnosis of exclusion, or Dr. Rao can probably comment on this further, but there's no... There's no test I can do to attribute something to COVID just to exclude other causes. And um, I'm curious to know from Dr. Rao what what the latest treatments seem to be for long COVID. Because yeah. as an ER physician, I can tell you other than advising people to take a baby aspirin, um, there's really not much I've heard is out there. Yeah, I think that's very true. I don't think there's a single test that we can do that makes the diagnosis of long COVID. And as you mentioned, it's a diagnosis of exclusion. We've got to think of other causes that are manifesting the same way that long COVID does. And when we exclude or rule out all of these other illnesses, we're left with this diagnosis of long COVID. I, I, I am curious, Dr. Rao, do do doctors have a problem sometimes believing patients that it's long yeah. COVID because there is no specific test to Dr. Kempen's uh, point and there is no really specific remedy for it, even if you believe it's long COVID? So do doctors tend to dismiss it and go, ah, you know, you're probably just tense. It'll go away. I think that's one of the uh, big um, signals that we're seeing in our clinic Uh you know, people with long COVID have gone to multiple providers and the um, physicians have not made a diagnosis and they sort of throw up their hands and say, I don't know what this is. It may not be something real, but I want you to go to someone that's got a, a long COVID clinic to make sure that I, this is not one of the long COVID symptoms. All right. Um, thank you so much. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. 
No, I think that's important that uh, we're still trying to understand what really defines long COVID and how we treat it. There is no treatment at the moment, and it's all supported. We're still writing the book on long COVID. Absolutely. All right. Thank you, Dr. Dupa Rao, pulmonologist from Keck Medicine of USC. You're listening to a very special edition of KNX In-Depth, COVID-19, three years later with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. We are joined again by COVID survivor Greg Garfield and Dr. Angeline Campen from Providence St. Joseph Medical Center in Burbank. And now we are also going to bring into our discussion Dr. Barbara Ferrer, L.A. County Public Health Director. Thank you for being with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me, uh, Rob and Charles. And I'm obviously uh, really honored to be joining uh, with Greg and with Angeline. Let me ask you a question. Do you get upset when you hear people, because I'm sure you do, and I hear it every day almost, who say the pandemic is over? It's all done. I don't know that I get upset with people. We're exhausted by this pandemic. And, you know, we do we do want it uh, to be completely over. Uh, So I, I completely actually understand and identify with folks who are just like, you know, I'm done, the pandemic's over. I think the the reality is, and I think most people know this, it's not over. We're in a much, much better place, Uh, but we'd be foolish uh, to not continue to take some sensible precautions, uh, be very diligent about watching uh, our data on new strains and variants, pay a lot of attention to taking care of people who are more vulnerable to severe illness and death. We still have, you know, somewhere between five and 10 people dying each day here in LA County uh, from COVID-19. There's no other respiratory illness that has a death rate that high. So we're going to need to be careful uh, and cautious uh, and just, you know, pay attention to what we've learned over the last three years. We got great tools. We need to use them. You know, we as uh, people say that uh, they try to point out we have moved beyond the pandemic phase, but COVID is still here. And that is obviously the case. COVID is still here, even though maybe the pandemic emergency part might be ending. But I know some people, when they heard that they were moving out of that phase of it, they took all their face masks and uh, threw everything away, and even the new ones away. And I'm never going to wear one again. But but wouldn't it behoove us, and I love using the word behoove, uh, to keep masks on hand and make that kind of a way of life, not to wear masks all the time, but to wear masks in certain situations or when the flu season ticks up or when the weather changes or when you're going to be inside of an airplane with a lot of other people, just as a matter of like, hey, you know what, I think I'm going to wear my mask when I go to this thing today. You know, it's a great suggestion and and I applaud you for, for actually uh, letting, you know, all of your listeners know that there there are ways to uh, managed our future uh, and still reduce the risk. You know, for some people, uh, they have a lot of risk and, and wearing a mask is offering them a lot of protection. I, I really urge people uh, not to question why people are wearing masks. Uh, people can be ill. They can be taking care of people who are very vulnerable. Uh, they can want, as you just pointed out, to layer on an additional protection in settings uh, and that makes a lot of sense. And and so keep those masks handy. Some people will need to continue to use them on a fairly regular basis. And other people really, you know, as you see yourself in a riskier situation, or as you noted, uh, we're in a period of time when there's a lot more circulation of respiratory viruses. I am curious, what do you do? 
I wear my mask a lot. I don't wear it everywhere. And, and people know that, you know, I, I go to a lot of sporting events when I'm outside. I feel very comfortable not wearing it short periods of time indoors. Uh, I'm very um, aware of where workers are wearing their masks while they're doing their jobs. And I try to keep my mask on in those situations. And I have to say at our workplace, uh, we all still keep our masks on when we're around other people. We know we can't really afford to have outbreaks here. Dr. Campin has a question for you. So probably very similar to uh, I never thought I'd be working under these situations. You probably have a very similar experience. I mean, there you probably never thought you'd be broadcasting daily on the news to L.A. County. I'm just curious, though, when you were making your decisions for as the public health director, how much did you have to take into account other governmental agencies and what 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 they needed? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And, you know, first, I, I want to say I, I've never acted alone. I have an amazing team here of really skilled practitioners. I have infectious disease physicians. I have epidemiologists. I have a chief science officer. We've got uh, entire clinical staff that's both out in the field and helping us, uh, you know, track our trends. Uh, so I've, I've never been by myself. And, and I, I say that because that's been a huge blessing um, to have a, a really uh, skilled set of partners uh, with me every single day, looking at the information, trying to use our best judgment and the science uh, and how to chart a part, uh, path forward when there was so much uncertainty. And we listen to lots of folks, including elected officials, uh, as we're moving forward. Uh, I will say, you know, here in L.A. County, I'm proud that we have really relied heavily on the science um, and information that's coming to us from the field about how to best uh, move forward, understanding that our obligation in public health is different than the obligation of an individual physician. I mean, we have to make sure that all 10 million plus residents and all of our workers uh, remain as safe as possible during a pandemic or, and any uh, you know dangerous infectious disease. Let, let me ask you a quick question about variants because you mentioned it in passing. Uh, and it has been actually quite some time since the public anyway has been made aware of any new variant to be concerned about. And I'm wondering, is that because, A, there hasn't been one that has emerged, or is it, B, that we're not doing as much testing all over the country that we used to do? Uh, you know, people don't go anymore often to get PCR tests. A lot of people are not doing home tests anymore. So is it that we're not tracking it the way we used to? It's a great question. Uh, we are tracking it. Uh, we, we track it very closely and, and we actually continue to sequence a lot of samples every week so that we can track it locally. And we're, of course, connected to both the state and to CDC so we can understand what's happening across the country. It would be foolish not to be tracking on variants and new strains. And we do present uh, that information and we update our website every week. Uh, with what we are seeing. I think the biggest difference uh, we've uh, really recognized the last six months is that all of the new strains uh, have been uh, associated with Omicron. Uh, so we don't really have a new variant. We have new strains of Omicron. And because the tools we have, our vaccines, our boosters, our tests, our therapeutics, work very well in protecting us from Omicron, 
The new strains, although when they do emerge, they have the capacity to cause more infection, are not leading to what we've seen in the past with new variants, which was much higher rates of severe illness Mm -hmm. and death. So that may be in part why uh, we pay less attention. Uh, Right now, we've got, you know, our new strain XBB.1.5. You know, the numbers have gotten super complicated. (laughs) It's, It's an Omicron strain. Um, and uh, there's uh, no evidence right now that we need to be concerned about the fact that it's dominating. Okay, we're uh, up against a hard break here, but before uh, we go to the break, I wanted to ask Greg Garfield, our COVID survivor, one of the first serious patients had to be hospitalized uh, in the West and and in L.A. County. Uh, Greg, do you still wear your mask? I do at times, um, only when I get on planes and such, but for the most part, I'm I'm a little bit, uh, I'm comfortable. All right. Uh, Greg Garfield still wears his mask from time to time. And with us in studio is Dr. Angelique Campin from Providence St. Joseph Medical Center in Burbank. We also have Greg Garfield, who is a COVID survivor who spent weeks and weeks in the hospital that was back in 2020 and is uh, okay now. Yeah. And uh, the response uh, to the pandemic divided us politically. I think that is a truth that we cannot escape. Maybe some of the deepest political divisions we have seen in this country in a long time. Andy Slavitz, former senior advisor for COVID response in the Biden administration and host of the uh, In the Bubble podcast. Andy, thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be here. So because of this political division, uh, are we going to be able to handle the next pandemic? It's a great question. Uh, you know, unfortunately, everything seems to divide us politically uh, these days. And, you know, we, we may all distantly remember that at the beginning of this, when we were really scared in 2020, um, you know, people were much more aligned. People were cheering on hospital workers, making masks. Um, but, you know, after a certain amount of time, you know, that where that where it's really thin. And I think we we really do have to remind ourselves that, you know, in a, in a case of a pandemic, there really is no villain. The villain isn't each other. The villain is a virus that we can't see. Uh, and we may be angry and we may be upset, but uh, taking it out on each other, whether for political reasons or just because we're uh, exhausted, um, isn't isn't going to help us. Well, and I wonder, Andy, if our experience with the covid pandemic isn't actually going to now backfire because when and not if, but when the next pandemic happens, if people aren't going to even more quickly go along their own political divide lines and, and those, you know, you're going to have people right off the bat who are going to say, I'm not going to ever wear a mask. And no, I don't I don't trust vaccines because they're implanting chips in my brain or some nonsense like that. Uh, I wonder if we're going to have even that brief period that we had at the beginning of this pandemic, where, as you pointed out, people were cheering medical workers on. Well, I, I think I agree with you. I mean, uh, we're probably further behind in terms of support for public health than we were when this started. History has shown, though, that, that uh, over a couple of years that'll dissipate and people will look back um, with some perspective. And and look, I think that um, it's already it's already haunting us and that we're not able to get Congress to make the investments in and readiness uh, that we need to make. And so I think that makes us less prepared. Um, But it's also the case uh, that when it's uncertain, when people are scared, when people are worried for themselves and their families, um, they will suspend that anger, at least for the time being. When when, when people started to get political and pointing fingers was once people realized that this was more likely to happen to other people than to them. And as soon as they felt safer and felt like this is happening to older people, 
or, or other types of people, um, you know, they started to say, why, why am I sacrificing? Why am I worrying about this so much? And so at the beginning of the next event, when there is one, you know, I think we'll go through that same, um, that same feeling of fear. And I think the point in that time is not to exacerbate people's fear, but to use that to say, hey, we're focused on this. Here's a smart way to manage it and move forward. What role did misinformation and conspiracy theory play in this uh, division here? Because I, as I recall, a lot of the politicization really got hot and heavy about the time that there were people saying that COVID was a hoax, that it was all made up. They were trying to break into hospitals and, and film videos showing, proving that there are no patients here, nothing's happening, it's a hoax. They are trying to control you, and that's when things got so politically divided. So if that's what divided us this time, when we have something next time are the conspiracy theorists and the misinformation doctors going to be uh, hot and ready to go right at the beginning it's a really interesting question you know if you look at uh, at the data on everybody that didn't get vaccinated um which is you know only some uh, 30% of the population depending on what you're looking at uh, 80% of them of people who didn't get vaccinated reported believing one of five myth truth myths myths truths i can't say that word very well um, about um, the lies, about, lies. They believed uh, lies. Yeah. Well, you know, in some cases they were lies. In some cases they were just things that they heard. And the vast, vast majority of those people um, were not ill intent or Ill, they were um, they were just getting information from the wrong place. And people spreading that information oftentimes were spreading it because they heard it somewhere. Um, there was which was actually generated by a very, very small number of individuals um, who were able to make that that uh, play, prey on people's doubts, use the algorithms in social media, and quite frankly, use the primetime news of one of our cable networks um, to really kind of 24 by 7 um, move messages of doubt out there. And in this day and age, uh, that's all it takes. So it's reasonable for people to have questions. It's reasonable for people to say, should I or shouldn't I get vaccinated? And, and all we can do is make sure we provide people the most clear, factual information possible and have them decide for themselves. And when that competes against some unscrupulous lie, like, hey, if you're in your 30s and a female, you may not ever be able to get pregnant again. Or if you don't like needles, this needle is 15 feet long. We could prey on people quite easily through social media and dirt media. Andy, we're going to run out of time, but Dr. Campin has a quick question for you. Quick question. At the at the break, we were talking about how things are very different. Responses are very different in other countries. They may not... Uh, isolate. They may not mask. They may not uh, respond the way we do. And in your getting the United States ready for the next pandemic, how do you how do you protect us, or how do you work with other countries? So you know, people don't like um, being having to go out of their way, wear masks, do things that they they otherwise think inconvenience them. Um, the, and that's true in, in many parts of the world. What's different here? is it was weaponized for politics. And it was it was the, the initial premise of the very first question, is if people had serious misgivings or didn't like wearing masks, you can deal with that with some honest debate and some conversations. But when it gets taken up to the level of, hey, if you wear a red jersey, you believe this. And if you, were, if you don't believe this, you're not on the team anymore. And if you wear a blue jersey, you believe that. And if you don't believe that, you're not on the team anymore. Then you're really sort of stuck. 
All right, thank you. Uh, we want to give our uh, COVID survivor, Greg Garfield, one of the first uh, patients had a serious case of it in L.A. County and indeed uh, the Western world. Greg, you want to have a final word on COVID-19 three years later? It's just interesting that um, even three years later, there's so much misinformation. Um, people come up to me uh, and ask me questions of why did this happen to you? Uh, it must have been you have pre-existing conditions and all the other th- things that were that were brought out. I- I'm one of the few people that kind of miffs a bunch of it where I had no pre-existing conditions at all. Uh, I was probably one of the healthier people that are out there, and I got it the worst of anybody that's probably still alive from this thing. Um, and it, it's it, nobody knows to this day why I got it so severely. Uh, with the cytokine storm and complete organ failure and all the stuff that went along with it. Uh, so it's kind of a, it's just an interesting, interesting concept of what all this misinformation is, is kind of out there with. All right. Greg Garfield, uh, COVID survivor. We want to thank all of our guests today because I think uh, we had a collection of guests that uh, have so much intelligence that it puts uh, Charles and me to shame that's uh, not hard to do. No, it's not hard to do, but <laughs> still just very much uh, up there on that scale. We want to thank them for our special edition of KNX in Depth today. Uh, COVID-19, three years later, we will be back on Monday with another edition of In Depth.